Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 17th episode of Late Night Crimecast. I'm your host, Robin Steffens, and every week on Thursday, I'm going to post a new true crime story. I will cover cases that are local, cases that got a lot of media attention, and everything in between. Before we get started, I would like to ask you, my late night listener, to leave a rating and review on this podcast. They are always helpful, a lot more than you would think, and I would really appreciate it. Now let's get into today's case. I realized that my last few episodes, I've been pretty much covering murder cases, and I've kind of wandered away from strictly missing persons cases, so I kind of want to get back to that. With that being said, I actually want to talk about two separate abduction cases that are connected to one another. Today, I want to talk about the abductions of Steven Stainer and Timothy White. Steven Stainer was born on April 18, 1965. He was the third of five children born to Delbert and Kay Stainer. He had three sisters and an older brother that I will actually discuss later on in this episode. Anyway, the family lived in Merced, California, yielding the highest percentage of the world's almond, pistachio, and strawberry crops, amongst many others, Merced, California was always known for its farming and agriculture. The small, quiet farming town was also known for its vicinity to Yosemite National Park. It was even sometimes called the Gateway to Yosemite. It was a beautiful place for the family to call home. The family was quite large, and so both parents, they kind of had to compensate for that. Delbert, the father, was a mechanic while the mother, Kay, took any kind of service jobs that she could while also trying to raise their young children. They could not really afford to do things like pick their kids up from school, so often the kids were left to their own devices. In 1972, Stephen was seven years old and often he would walk to and from school alone. Something not many parents would do in this day and age, but back then, people were likely quite ignorant to any kind of violence that may have been happening around them because they simply just, they didn't have the technology that we currently do. So this young child was allowed to walk home alone. And on December 4th, 1972, his world would be forever changed. While walking on his normal route that day, he was stopped by a white Buick carrying two men. The man in the driver's seat spoke to him, asking him if he would like to make a donation to a church. Stephen said that his mom might like to make a donation, so the man took his chance then. He told Stephen he was a minister and told him that he could drive him home to collect a church donation from his mother. Stephen reluctantly agreed. He went to the car door where the other passenger in the car was waiting for him. He got into the car not knowing what horrors awaited him. Now, who were these men? One was named Edward Irving Murphy, and the other, Kenneth Purnell. Murphy was a night janitor working at the Yosemite Lodge about two hours away. He was known to be slow-witted and quite trusting of others. While working at the lodge, he met Parnell. Parnell was working at the lodge as well, but as a night auditor. 
He was a cruel and manipulative man, previously convicted of molesting a child. For his duration at that job, Parnell had Murphy convinced that he was actually a minister and that he wanted to find a boy to raise in a religious household. Parnell used this manipulation to get Murphy to help him abduct a child. And that is how they ended up two hours away in Merced, California, hunting for a child under the guise of church ministers. So after Stephen got into the car with the two men, it wasn't too long before he started to become more scared and confused. He knew this especially when he arrived at a strange place that this was not his family's home. Murphy left and Parnell had taken Stephen to Kathy's Valley where he had a cabin. Parnell told Stephen that his parents couldn't afford to keep him anymore, that his parents had too many children, and that the judge had given him legal custody of him. Now to a child, I can't imagine how scary that must have been, how confused and distraught he must have been after being whisked away and told that his parents didn't want him anymore. I mean, he was a child, so he must have just believed him. He must have really thought that his parents just didn't want him anymore and allowed him to be taken away. All this made worse by what was to come. Parnell sodomized Stephen that very first night. This was something that would happen to Stephen frequently over the next seven years. Stephen continued to live with Parnell under a new name. Stephen was now Dennis Parnell, and he really played the part of being his son. He was allowed to go to school and was enrolled into school under the name Dennis Gregory Parnell, and he used the same date of birth. Outside of school, Stephen was actually given quite a lot of freedom. It wasn't like he was locked in the house or basement or something like that. He was allowed to leave the house and do what he wanted. Parnell even allowed him to begin smoking marijuana and drinking at a young age. Stephen even received a dog from Parnell, a Manchester Terrier that he named Queenie. Despite the freedom he was given, Stephen was still being physically, sexually, and mentally abused by Parnell. And I'm sure after all that time, he was so confused. This man told him that he was now legally his father, and I mean, he changed his name and enrolled him into school, so to Stephen, that must have just been validating this even further for him. There are many questions of why Stephen didn't just leave. If he was given freedom and he could go to school, why didn't he tell anyone? But I think this could all be summed up to being young, naive, and scared. Also, if the sexual abuse and the physical abuse started when he was so young, he might not even realize the significance. He might have just, you know, thought that that was normal. Stephen was quoted saying this about the sexual abuse he endured. I just basically thought that it was something sort of normal that I never had known about before. And it hurt. It hurt a lot. And I kept crying. But Parnell just ignored me and kept on doing it. So Stephen didn't know it was wrong. That is, until he grew up. And he really did begin to realize how messed up his situation was and really begin to rebel. He was no longer willing to put up with the abuse he had suffered for so many years. But by the time Stephen was 14, it seemed that Parnell had already started to lose interest in him anyway. So Parnell set out to kidnap another child, this time using Stephen to help him kidnap the child. The kidnapping attempts failed several times due to Stephen not being able to follow directions, which Stephen later admitted was him purposefully messing up the attempts. 
Instead, Parnell decided to recruit the help of a friend of Stevens named Randall Sean Poorman. This time, they were able to finally successfully abduct a child. That child was named Timothy James White. Timothy James White was born on November 1st, 1974, to his mother, Angela Gitlin, and his father, James White. On February 13th, 1980, his life would forever be changed. Parnell and Poorman went out that day with their sole goal being to abduct a child. Poorman noticed Timothy playing outside his parents' house in Ukiah, California. Poorman attempted to get Timothy into the car, but the boy was not falling for it. He refused and attempted to run indoors. But unfortunately, Poorman was too quick. He shoved the boy against a chain link fence, forced him to loosen his grip, then dragged him, kicking and screaming, into the car. But it was already too late for that. Poorman got off with Timothy, and Parnell finally had another child to torture. Quickly, Parnell started to work on Timothy the same way he did to Stephen. He told him his new name was Tommy, and he also dyed Timothy's natural blonde hair dark brown. This was done to mask his appearance because, I mean, they would be searching for him, but it was also done to better pass Timothy and Stephen as brothers. Timothy, who was five years old at the time, cried and begged to be taken home. He was incredibly distraught, which led to Stephen feeling really bad for him. He felt that if he did nothing and just stood by, the same thing that happened to him would happen to Timothy. In the next two weeks, the boys would form a strong bond. Stephen would take care of Timothy and watch out for him, even coming home early from school to make sure that Parnell was not doing anything to him. Stephen was determined to not see another child suffer the same abuse that he endured and wanted to return the boy to his parents. So on March 1st, 1980, while Parnell was at work, the boys escaped. The boys were really unsure of where to go as Parnell purposefully lived outside of regular civilization, but luckily for the boys, a passing truck driver saw them walking and gave them a ride back to Ukiah, California, where Timothy had lived. They were unable to find Timothy's parents' home, so instead they went to the police department, where they were able to be identified as missing children. By the morning of March 2, 1980, Parnell was arrested on suspicion of abducting both boys. The children were both reunited with their families that day as well. I can only imagine the happiness and relief that must have been for the families, because, you know, especially for Stephen's family, he was gone for seven years. In most cases, people with family members that are missing for that long, they just assume that they're dead. So for them, it must have been one of the greatest moments of their life. Not too long after that, in 1981, Parnell was tried and convicted of kidnapping White and Stainer in two separate trials. He was sentenced to eight years and eight months, but was paroled after serving five. For some reason, he was not charged with the numerous sexual assaults, and I guess I don't understand exactly how the laws were back then or in that state, 
but this was what I was able to gather. Stephen denied being sexually abused by Parnell at first. I think that he must have been ashamed of what had happened to him or, you know, scared to share that. But it was after he was shown pictures that Parnell had taken of him naked that he finally confessed that he was sexually assaulted by him. But must have been hundreds of times. They tried to use those same pictures in court, but they were deemed inadmissible as evidence due to the fact that the search of Parnell's property was conducted improperly. Unfortunately, even after Stephen confessed all that had happened, it turns out that most of the sexual assaults occurred outside the jurisdiction of Merced County or by then were outside of the statute of limitations. This means that any sexual assaults that took place before 1977 he could not be persecuted for. And I mean, that doesn't matter. There are still dozens of counts of sexual assaults he could have still been convicted of, but they just did not charge him. I honestly think that it was because they wanted to protect Stephen from what people would say or think when they found out what the charges were. Unfortunately, Stephen still had a rough time transitioning back to the life he had. He never really got the treatment he needed to recover from the extremely traumatic experience. He started drinking, smoking, and becoming reckless. There were so many people who saw him as being a hero and resilient, but the things that other people would say, the negative things, they just had to get to him. He was bullied by other children at school for being molested and eventually dropped out. Things did start to get better for him as he grew into an adult, got married, and started a family. But unfortunately, on September 16, 1989, Stephen was in a hit-and-run motorcycle accident and was thrown 45 feet from his motorcycle. He was declared dead due to a fracture at the back of his skull. At 24, he left behind a wife and two young children. Parnell got out of prison in 1985 for the abductions of Timothy White and Stephen Stainer. He was still allowed to work and live around young boys, however. In 2003, he was sentenced 25 to life for attempting to purchase a child and attempted molestation. Kenneth Parnell died of natural causes in 2008 at the age of 76. As for Timothy, he grew up to later become a Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department deputy. He even testified against Parnell in the 2004 trial. He died on April 1, 2010 at 35 from a pulmonary embolism. He too left behind a wife and two young children. Some interesting facts about the case. Missing person posters were supposedly distributed in Yosemite National Park following the abduction. And if you can recall, this is the area that Parnell had taken Stephen immediately after the abduction. However, no one who had been in the park could ever recall seeing those posters. In addition to that, on January 2nd, 1973, Stephen was enrolled in Steel Lane Elementary. 
That same month, the school district office received a letter from Stevens' parents that included bulletins they requested be distributed to the primary schools in the district. Unfortunately, the letters and bulletins they had sent had been thrown out at the district office and had never made it to Steel Lane Elementary or other schools in that area, the schools that he had also attended. Something else I found interesting was that there was a woman that came into Parnell's life while Stephen was there. For a period of 18 months, this woman named Barbara Matthews lived with Parnell and Stephen. Stephen stated that they both raped him on nine separate occasions at the age of nine. This woman later claimed to have been completely unaware that Dennis, aka Stephen, had in fact been kidnapped. And for some reason, she was never charged with any crimes. I'm guessing this also comes into the time range that it had happened, like she wasn't able to be convicted any longer for that sexual assault, which is so messed up, but let's move on. There's something even more depressing. The first place that Stephen was taken, the cabin in Cathy's Valley, was located only several hundred feet from Stephen's maternal grandfather's residence. So they were literally that close. His family, they were that close and he just didn't know. It's really, really depressing. And then we get even worse. I wanna talk about Stephen's brother, Carrie Stainer. I had mentioned this earlier that I wanted to talk about him, so I'm going to. Stephen's family was absolutely devastated by his disappearance. I mean, as any family would be. They devoted all of their time and energy into searching for him. And in that, I believe that his brother developed some kind of complex. Like Stephen was getting all of this attention without even being there. And then seven years later, he pops up and he starts getting even more attention. You know, his family, they can't leave him alone. The press can't leave him alone. And so Stephen's getting all of this attention and it seems like he's always had all of this attention. So for Carrie, it seemed like he wanted to do something to get that same kind of attention. He desperately craved that kind of attention. And in his own words, he said that he felt neglected. And so it seems like he turned to doing something so cruel and just so terrible. He turned to murder during that time. He confessed to and was convicted of the murders of four women between February and July 1999. These women were innocent, they were traveling, they were just tourists, and he murdered them. He had burnt two victims, decapitated one, strangled another, I believe, or maybe he slit her throat, I think. He just committed these crimes against these women, and that's it. And I'm kind of glad this happened after Stephen passed, because I can't imagine him going through some more trauma like that. But yeah, I think I'm going to end it there. I just wanted to share some facts about the case that I found interesting, but I think that's going to be it. So guys, that was a wild ride, was it not? There are so many different layers to this case, and I really hope I covered them all. 
I might go further into detail about Parnell on the next Murder Monday, but that is yet to be decided. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I'll talk to you next week. Bye! Thank mm-hmm. you.